Well, let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. And if you're here with us and you're new to Calvary Chapel, we welcome you. Great time to jump in. We are going to be taking a look over the next several weeks, uh, the book of Jonah, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And as we look at the book of Jonah, we are going to be confronted with the reality of forgiveness. And the fear that some carry when it comes to forgiving. Now you may say to yourself, I've never heard of that before, a fear of forgiveness. Well, let me tell you, it's more prevalent than you think, especially through the Bible. We are going to discover that Jonah, this once faithful prophet of God, who had been used by God many times prior to this account in which we read this morning, faithful unto the call and to the will of God, when called upon to invite a group of individuals to repent and to experience the forgiveness of God, he runs from the will of God, which we'll look at this morning. There are many who fear forgiveness. Those in the Bible who fear forgiveness are those who feel comfortable in their unforgiveness towards another person, actually discovering their personal identity in unforgiveness. Is that possible? Wait, you'll see it for yourself. There are those who fear forgiveness because they understand that the forgiveness of others will highlight the sin within themselves. The forgiveness of others will highlight the sin within themselves. And there are those that we will discover who harbor their unforgiveness due to the fact that they simply don't want to deal with the prospects and the process of reconciliation with those that they are estranged from. Unforgiveness is a plague in our nature, or I'm sorry, nation and culture today. We are reaping so many consequences due to unforgiveness that even our secular uh, psychological journals are all indicating that unforgiveness is leading to physical, mental, and spiritual consequences within the life of a belief, within the life of an individual. When it comes to the physical repercussions of unforgiveness, stress, anxiety, worry, fear, leading to such conditions as everything from heart attacks to strokes. The mental anguish, the bitterness, and the depression that comes along as a consequence of unforgiveness is at record proportion, according to counselors and psychologists in the United States of America. But there's a spiritual ramification, a lack of peace that was never discovered or found in the life of an individual who harbors unforgiveness. And we know that as the Bible has stated clearly in Matthew's gospel, that unless we forgive others their trespasses, God will not forgive us our trespasses. Forgiveness is a huge issue. And there are those who fear forgiveness. And I believe Jonah is an example of that this morning. Now we need to do a little academic housekeeping before we begin the book of Jonah together. 
The book of Jonah is one of the most debated books of the entire Bible. And the debate is simply this. Should the book be taken literally as a historical account, even with the fascinating experiences of Jonah being in the belly of the great fish? Or is it simply hyperbole? Is it allegorical in its nature? Well, I believe the the question to that, or the answer to that question, excuse me, is answered very clearly by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus made it abundantly clear that Jonah was a historical individual. In fact, he's mentioned elsewhere within the Old Testament. So to think that Jonah is a fictional character is just not substantiated by the Bible itself. The event of Jonah being in the belly of the great fish, Jesus himself said that a sign that I will provide for you is the same sign that Jonah gave you that three days and three nights I'll be in the belly of the earth. But then when it comes to the city of Nineveh, which we know archaeology has discovered not only the city but much of of its historical content, we discovered that Nineveh was an actual city and Jesus referred to it as an actual city. No, I do not believe the book of Jonah is allegorical. I believe it is literal. You mean to tell me that you believe that Jonah spent some time in the belly of a great fish? Yeah, I don't have any problem with that. You know why? But for, because for God, that's nothing. Really? God could have provided at that time a nuclear submarine to pick up Jonah if God wanted to, couldn't he? God can do anything he wants to do. When people question the, the miracles of the Bible, they're not questioning the Bible, they're questioning their understanding of God. How big is their God? And as a result, they often limit God to their own personal limitations. As we begin Jonah, we jump right into it. There's no easing into it. There's no script coming along the uh, screen giving us a preview of everything that has happened up until this point. The writer, who I believe is Jonah himself, jumps right into the narrative. And we jump into the story, and without some of the backstory, we kind of get lost in the narrative itself. But as we begin the book of Jonah, let us first understand that it was God's desire from the very conception of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament that the nation of Israel be a witness and a light to every other nation of the world for the glory of God. It was God's desire that the nation of Israel would lead other nations to come and to worship the Lord. But their sin and their rebellion against God limited that witness, destroyed and distorted that witness greatly. And God, therefore, had to deal with the nation of Israel over and over and over again throughout the book of the Old Testament, I should say, itself, using nations to come and judge his own people, including the Assyrian nation, the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. And as a result, they never fulfilled their outreach to the Gentiles. This is exactly the same outreach that Jesus talks about concerning the church now going into all the world and the Gentiles being grafted into the vine of the nation of Israel and so forth. What the Old Testament individuals of Judaism could not accomplish in and through their weaknesses, Jesus Christ has accomplished perfectly through his strength and his perfection. 
But now we come to the time of the book of Jonah, where Jonah is running from the will of God. That's where we pick it up this morning. God calls out to Jonah, gives him not only direction, but the word in which to say, and yet Jonah then has the opportunity to respect or reject it, to obey or to disobey it, and Jonah decides to disobey it. Once again, illustrating Israel's failure to take the good news to the entire world. And instead of going to where God was going to send him, he hopped a ship, and tried to go as far from God as possible to an area called Tarshish there in the southern area of Spain. Tarshish was the farthest port from where uh, uh, God wanted Jonah to go. He was trying to run away from God's will for his life. But during the time of Jonah, which is about 760 B.C., Jonah has now served alongside of the prophet Amos and the prophet Hosea, ministering to the nation of Israel during a time of great prosperity and blessing. Israel under King Jeroboam II. Though King Jeroboam II himself was an evil king, Israel was experiencing such blessing and prosperity, military expansion, that the nation was so wealthy at this time that it almost paralleled the time under Solomon's reign as king there in Israel. But Jeroboam, being an evil king, the purposes of God was to draw the nation of Israel back to him through repentance by blessing them and prospering them and showing the kindness of God to them in hopes that they would repent. However, though, In this time of prosperity, the prophets Amos, the prophets Hosea, the prophet Jonah all realized that the spiritual condition of the uh, nation of Israel was deteriorating before them. And they knew that it was only a moment of time, these prophets did, that God was going to judge them. And most likely, once again, judge them by bringing the Assyrian Empire to conquer them once again to get their attention and hopefully draw them back to God. But now God calls upon Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and tell them that their time is up, that God is going to judge them due to the evil that has come to his attention. And instead of Jonah obeying this directive, he runs from this directive. And that's where we pick it up now in verse 1. Let's read our text together this morning, and then we'll take a look at it more specifically in just a moment. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amnity, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. 
Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it, it from them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the, the God will give us a thought to us and that we may not perish. God made it abundantly clear, Jonah, this is what I want you to do. I want you to arise and go. There's a sense of urgency. There's a direct call upon Noah, uh, Jonah. Go now. And I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It is so clear that there's no ambiguity in the command of God, the direction of God. The only thing for Jonah to do is either to receive it and obey it, or reject it and disobey it. Was he going to respect the call of God upon his life, or was he going to reject it? Now, all we know here at this point is that instead of going to Nineveh, he clearly turns and hightails it out of there. Nineveh was the largest city at that time. In fact, Nineveh was originally established by Nimrod back in the book of Genesis. And it, has, it had become the center of the Assyrian Empire. It was an enormous city. The Bible tells us in the book of Jonah that it took three days to walk across the length of the city. The wall that surrounded the city of Nineveh was 60 miles in circumference. It was enormous. The top of the walls were large enough to hold chariot races upon, and it would be an immense task for one individual to bring a message to the people of Nineveh, just on a logistics basis. But it wasn't the size of Nineveh that intimidated, apparently intimidated uh, Jonah. It wasn't the evil that God seems to have talked about, even though the evil was well known to the Israelites. The evil was so intense that the Bible itself tells us in many different places, especially in the prophet Nahum, about some of the wickedness of the people of Nineveh towards the rest of the world. For Nahum tells us that they were violent, bloodthirsty people, guilty of slaughtering so many, and they were known to be the most cruel people on the face of the entire earth. Words such as evil, sinful, wicked people are used continuously for the people of Nineveh. They were full of lies and deceit, guilty of thievery and plundering. They were guilty of false worship, engaging in the uh, world of the occult and witchcraft. By the way, side note, did anybody read this article of individual Christian witches Okay, Christian and witch is an oxymoron. They do not go hand in hand. What relationship does light have with darkness? These witches are gathering to bring upon a hex upon Judge Kavanaugh. This poor guy. 
Can you imagine him going through all the Ivy League schools that he did, then serving his 12 years on the federal court, now having to worry about having a, a spell cast against him? This and his family. What, what, what's happening to our nation? Is this, is this bizarro world? As one of my favorite theologians, the little boy that's found in the Diary of a Wimpy Kid stories said, Has every, are we living in crazy town? There is no such thing as a Christian witch. Witchcraft is prohibited throughout the Bible. And it's something that should be absolutely avoided at all cost. But the people of Nineveh practiced witchcraft and it was one of their absolute cornerstones of their cultural society. They were so cruel to the prisoners in which they captured that they would rip the lips off the individuals so they could not eat or drink. They would cut off their hands. They would put hooks in their bodies and string them up one against another and parade them through the city of Nineveh. And now Jonah is being asked to go and to proclaim judgment upon this city for evil has come to the attention of God. One commentator who wrote back in the late 1940s stated this, this would be like a Jewish man in New York being asked during World War II to go and to proclaim the gospel to the city of Berlin during that incredible uprise of the Nazi party. It was a horrendous call. And yet, Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. But we're going to learn later on in this, in this story that Jonah did not leave because of its evil. Jonah did not fear the immense size of it. Do you know what Jonah was afraid of? That they were going to repent. Jonah was afraid that they were going to receive the forgiveness in which God may offer them. In fact, when Jonah goes, we're going to read on as we continue through the book together. I'm going to give you a little bit of foresight and the story. We're going to find that Jonah doesn't even give them an opportunity to repent. He just said, in 40 days, that's it. Your guys are done. Toast. And yet it was enough to turn the whole nation around. That would be the whole city around. And they repented before God. It wasn't their evil. It wasn't their size. It was forgiveness that he was afraid of. And he'll state that openly as we continue. Jonah knew that if the city of Nineveh were to repent, then they would be in God's favor and be used as instruments of judgment in the hands of God towards the Israeli people. See, he was fearful that they were going to repent because, and Israel wasn't going to repent. Israel is enjoying all the favor of God and all these blessings and prosperities, and yet they are still slipping farther and farther into spiritual decay. But if God judges Nineveh, then he cannot use them as an instrument of judgment against my people Israel. But if he forgives them, and if he allows them to continue, and they gain his favor by repenting, then it is my people Israel that is going to suffer the consequences severely of their sin before their God. This is all playing out now in Jonah's mind to the point that he is now willing to hightail it out of there. Look at it with me in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Please underline that phrase. 
He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. It is clear he is trying to get away from God. He's trying to hide from God. Now, can you hide anywhere from God? It's impossible. All things are open and naked to his sight. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. It's impossible to hide from God. But Jonah here is attempting to run from the presence of the Lord. It is interesting to me that when one is fleeing the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's always due to their sin. There's something wrong going on within them. In Jonah's case, he doesn't want to offer the opportunity of repentance to Nineveh. He doesn't want that opportunity to be uh, taken advantage of. And he's running from the presence of God in his sin, trying to hide from the call of God upon his life. But notice with me that in the Bible, there are places that others try to walk away from the presence of the Lord. And it started in Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. This is after Adam and Eve undoubtedly had fallen. In the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the garden. After Cain had sinned against Abel, notice this in 4.16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then even when you come to the New Testament, notice what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians concerning the time of tribulation, the time of judgment, when he writes, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because of our testimony to you was believed. There is no way to be disobedient to the will of God and to be in the presence of God at the same time in the sense of being in a right standing before the Lord. They are trying to avoid the presence of God. Adam and Eve, Cain, the individuals who run from the judgment of God during the tribulation period are all fleeing the presence of the Lord due to the fact that they do not want to deal or contend with the sin within them. You cannot be living in sin and walking in communion with the Lord at the same time. It's an impossibility. And when Christians find themselves in that position, that is when they find themselves in some of the most discouraging, um, dry times of their Christian life. When they are allowing sin to reign within their life that God wants them to deal with clearly, they are out of the will of God, they are trying to run from His presence, which is an impossibility, and as a result, they are suffering the consequence of that degree of separation. And what do I mean by that? That degree of separation. Paul made it clear that our relationship with the Lord is like that of a marriage. That Jesus Christ, his love towards the church should be the husband's love towards the wife and the wife's response should be that of the church's response to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are times in our marriage where we are very close and intimate with one another. That intimacy is then felt in a closeness, a communion type of state, where everything is just perfect in that relationship. There are other times in a marriage where you go from sweetie pie and, and poopy cue to the house isn't big enough. The bed isn't large enough. Whoever told you that a secret to a happy marriage is two bathrooms was absolutely right. Where you just don't want to be in the same room, but you're still married with that individual. But you're at, at odds with one, them for one reason or another. And when we allow sin to reign within us, we're at odds with our Lord. It hasn't separated us from the marriage, but it's given us a distance from his communion relationship with us. And he wants that close intimacy with us. And to regain that, we must deal with our sin. And Jonah here, not willing to deal with this, tries to run from the presence of God. Now there's an interesting note to be found here. In verses 1, 2, and 3, there's a trajectory that we find. There is a word that is used twice, and in fact, it'll be used a third time later on in this first chapter. This trajectory, notice that he goes down to Joppa and he goes down to the bottom of the ship. What direction is Jonah going in? The wrong way. He's going down instead of up. And it'll go even farther. He might have thought that the, the bowels of the ship was the lowest place in which he could reside, and yet he's going to find out very quickly that this great fish is going to take him even lower. And it shows that when we try to resist God's will and reject it, when we run and try to flee from the presence of God due to our convictions, when we think that we are trying to escape the accountability of, of God's requirements of us, we are only taking a down course trajectory away from God instead of towards God. But this is when the Lord steps in. As one wrote, the Warren Worsby, he stated, it is possible to be out of God's will and still have circumstances appear to be working on your behalf. You can rebel against God and still have false sense of security that includes a good night's sleep. What does he mean by that? Notice that when he went to find the ship to take him to Tarshish, he had the money to pay the fare to go on the ship. Once he got on the ship, he then felt secure enough to go down and to sleep in the bowels of the ship. Completely out of the will of God, though his circumstances may indicate differently. We cannot simply deduce that we are perfect or right with God simply based on circumstances. Jonah here clearly may have thought that I'm okay. You know, I've got the fare to pay it. There's the boat. It's going that way. If God didn't want me to go there, that boat wouldn't have been there for me. And so now I'm going to go. I'm just going to sleep underneath here and I'm going to go. But in actuality, what direction was he going? Down, down, down. There's no substitute to obeying the will of God. But here in verse 4, we see him trying to escape, fleeing to Tarshish, the farthest location that he can get to from and away from Nineveh. In verse 4, but the Lord hurled 
a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God threw, cast this wind across the sea to stop the ship in its tracks to the point where the ship itself almost might break up. You see, God knew exactly where Jonah was. He wasn't hiding from God in any way, shape, or form. But see, God not only wanted to work in the heart of the people of Nineveh, but more importantly, he wanted to work in his prophet Jonah's heart. And there were some attitudes that Jonah had that needed to be corrected. You see, God loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. So it's so important for us to understand that when God intervenes to such a degree and chastens us to such a degree, it is as if, it's, it, excuse me, it is as if a loving father is taking us to correct us that we may grow and to become the adults that we need to be in him. We find in Jonah that towards the will of God, he had a bad attitude. It's outworking of servanthood. He wanted Jonah to obey his will and therefore demonstrate that Jonah was a servant unto God. But in his disobedience, he could not have that outworking of servanthood and put Jonah in command in rather than the Lord. If we say Jesus is our Lord and he instructs us to do something and then we refuse to do it, aren't we actually saying, no, Lord, I don't want you to be Lord of my life. I want to retain that for myself. I don't want to submit to where you would have me to go. So therefore, I don't lo- I'm no longer a servant of the Lord. I become the Lord of myself, don't I? But he also had a bad attitude towards the word of God. He had a take it or leave it attitude. But the word of the Lord is the direction and is the foundation in which all of us stand upon. It is not something to be negotiated. It is something that God gives us to stand upon and to obey. And if we refuse to do it, if we have this take it or leave it attitude towards the word of God, then we ourselves find ourselves in a very precarious situation. I am discovering that as I am now entering my 23rd year of pastoring, that today the objection is not only to the existence of God in an atheistic worldview, but Christians today are now really questioning the authority of God's word in their life. And as a result, they are not tending to it. They are not reading it. They are not obeying it. They are not looking for it to provide direction or comfort to them in their times of need. They do not believe that God's word in and of itself is sufficient for all of the difficulties and needs that they face within their personal lives any longer. And that is such a lie. Read Psalm 119. And by the time you get to the end of it, tell me how sufficient God's word actually is for your life. God's word is what sustains us. God's word is what keeps us afloat when everything else is sinking beneath us. And yet if we have a take it or leave it attitude towards it, we are going to suffer greatly. You know, reading the Bible on a daily basis in personal devotion is not an option. It's a necessity for a healthy Christian life. 
and precede that reading with prayer and succeed that reading with prayer and allow God to meet you in those times in his word. But Jonah had an attitude of disregard for God's word and he therefore ran from it. But he also had a bad attitude towards the circumstances, though they were working for him and not against him. God stopped him in his tracks. I think of the disciples when they were crossing the Sea of Galilee. The winds came up. They all got scared. Who was sleeping in the back of the boat at that time? Jesus. They woke him up. They were all fearful. They were screaming out one right after another. And Jesus just got up and stilled the storm, didn't he? He says, we're going to go to the other side. We're going to go to the other side. Don't worry about it, guys. But Jonah here, he doesn't seem to care one way or another. As long as he's not going to Nineveh, he doesn't care what happens outside. But yet God is trying to correct the attitude towards him and saying, listen, it's not right for you to go contrary to my direction. I want you to go with my direction. And all of this led towards his bad attitude towards the people in which God called him to minister to. Jonah doesn't seem to have any regard for the individual people in which he is going to bring this message to. And all of that God wanted to correct and he did so by stopping the ship in its tracks, by hurling this great wind upon the sea to the point where the ship was about to be threatened to be broken up. In verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid and each one cried out to his God. Isn't that funny? How people become religious on the deathbed or in the crisis. They start crying out to God, and then as soon as the crisis is over, they forget all about God. But here, not only did they cry out to their gods, which of course was to no avail, they also practically started hurling the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it from them. So the ship would ride higher within the water and not strike any obstacle or rock beneath them. But Jonah had gone what? What's the next word? Down. He's still in the same place, right? He's going in the wrong direction. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? That's an interesting word to call him. Arise and call out to your God and perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. When Jonah was needed the most, he was found to be sleeping in the lower parts of the ship, not to have any kind of impact or effect on anything happening around him. But how could Jonah sleep in the middle of such a storm as great as this? One scholar believes that the storm that was raging with inside of Jonah was greater than the storm that was raging outside of him. And that storm within him was so great that it resisted the actual call of God upon his life. When we are outside of God's will, when we are running from his presence, the consequences of our sin will not only affect us, but will affect others around us. I can't tell you how often within a family dynamic you will discover that the sin of the husband or the sin of the wife not only affects them as individuals, but their children. Or the wife and her sin and her husband's experiencing the consequences thereof and vice versa. 
Sin always affects others, not just you. And when all the individuals on top were trying to save their lives, Jonah seemed to have no regard for the life of any, including his own. He was fast asleep in the bowels of the ship as all this was coming about. The captain could not understand it. Why would you do such a thing? It was almost the cry of one saying, why have you abandoned us in such a way? Why don't you call out to your God and maybe he will save us? But Jonah could not have been bothered. Jonah was fast asleep. Do you know that it's possible for believers to be asleep at the wheel? That the New Testament talks about this also. Where we remove ourselves from usefulness. Where we take ourselves out of the game. Because we have fallen asleep at the wheel, at the walk of our Christian lives. For Paul wrote in Romans 13, 11 through 14, he says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, meaning the Lord's return is imminent. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality or sensually, uh, sensually, not a quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires." He followed this up in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 11. So then let us not all let us not sleep as the others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as you, just you are doing. We can be asleep. We can be neglective to our roles as Christians by looking more like the world and less like Christ. We can absolutely diminish the urgency of today is the day of salvation by living as if God is never going to return or never hold us accountable for the sins in which the world has committed against him. If we live as if we believe Jesus Christ is never going to return, then how can we ask anyone else to believe that Jesus is is going to return? Jonah sleeping there gave the impression to those on the ship that his God was not interested in what was taking place. When in actuality, it was his God that created the environment that was taking place. So let us not be asleep like Jonah. Let us understand that running from the will of God will only take us in a trajectory farther and farther and farther away from God. And let us not be asleep at the wheel. For God has a purpose and plan for each and every one of us. Let me leave you with these closing thoughts from our time in the Word this morning. Let us know that as Jonah was called by God, so have you been called by God for a specific purpose and a specific plan that God has for your individual life. 
Well, how may I know that call upon my life? First and foremost, that call is given to us through the Word of God. Let us understand that there are verses in the Word of God that clearly articulate the will of God for us as believers in Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passions of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. Clearly stated, this is the will of God. He also writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 22. And as we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So not only do we have these verses that clearly articulate God's will for us, but any instruction to obey a certain command of God is also God's will for us. We understand that any instruction, any command that God gives us is also God's will for us. Any type of prohibition that the word of God lays before us is God's will for us. Meaning that if he says, don't do it, don't do it. If he says, do it, do it, right? Clearly. But then God also, I believe, has a specific will for every believer in Jesus Christ. This is a highly debated concept of Christianity today. There are many in the body of Christ who do not no longer believe that God has a specific will for individuals. It's just a general will that is discovered in the clear creedal texts of the Bible. Believing that an individual will is too subjective. How could anyone discern it? Well, that's a good question. It is subjective in the state that it is individually prescribed to a certain person. For example, God called me to become a pastor. I thought God had run out of names in his hat when he did so. I, in fact, did not truly understand this call, but it was a call that my pastor saw even within me that God had confirmed through him that this is what God was leading me to do for my ministry and my personal walk with him. But because the Lord has called me to be a pastor doesn't necessarily mean the Lord has called you to become a pastor. But remember what Paul said, that in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2, 8, and 9, turn there with me, I want you to see this. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I believe, are probably some of the most memorized verses in all the Bible. I bet you that many of you could recite them to me if I were to ask you. But what many often do is divorce 8 and 9 from verse 10. And in the Greek, it is one grammatical section. It is linked to the previous two verses. 
Of course, verse 8 of chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is, a, it is the gift of God, not res, a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we would all say amen, right? But unfortunately, they don't go on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There isn't only the purpose of saving you, but then he has a plan for you. He saves you for a purpose. This is what God would have you to do. A position within the body of Christ. Either an arm, a leg, a nose, a toe, whatever it may be. Not only that, but maybe your gifting and your, the spiritual gifts. God will equip you with spiritual gifts to be used for the edification of the body that is unique to your calling. This is the workmanship that he prepared from the foundations of the world for us to walk in. God saved us all for a purpose. There are no bystanders. There are no bleacher bums in the kingdom of God. Everybody has a purpose. So how do you find that purpose? Through prayer. Waiting on the Lord for that specific direction in which he may lead you. Waiting on God. And the call of God will often start with a burden. A burden in your heart like Nehemiah had when he heard that the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed and that his city lay in ruin. He became burdened in his heart in hopes that God would send someone, if not him, to go and rebuild those walls. It was a burden that was inescapable. Now, when I speak of burdens, I don't want you to confuse you with passions. Many will say, well, if they have a passion for something, that must be their burden. Now, wait a minute now. A passion can often be something that we want to do, apart from God. A burden can be something that God's calling us to do, but we don't necessarily want to do, right? But then he has to open doors accordingly, waiting on the Lord in prayer. The burden presents itself, and then after Nehemiah got that burden, the door was opened where the king allowed him to fulfill the burden in which was placed upon his heart. But not only was the burden placed, the doors were open, but then God provided. As the king then asked Nehemiah, what do you need in the way of materials to rebuild those? I think that's very interesting. So God not only burdened Nehemiah, but then opened the doors for Nehemiah, and then God provided for Nehemiah, and then God confirmed it. As Nehemiah brought things together, he then led the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem as God called him to do, and confirmations were given along the way. He wasn't an easy task. He was resisted at many times throughout the course of his endeavor, but he knew that what he was doing was what God would have him to do, and that let him keep pushing forward instead of retreating backwards. Let us all understand that God's call and will is is upon your life today and what would that call and will be and are you running from it or are you embracing it this morning? Number two, you need to be in his presence. Notice that this term continues in Acts 3, 18 through 21. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer and he thus fulfilled. He then says, repent 
therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the what? The presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ as appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This was Peter calling the Jews back to repentance in hopes that their Jewish repentance would then lead to the return of Jesus Christ here in Acts chapter 3. But the presence of the Lord was something that was sought after, and it was found after repentance had been offered. And then God would come in and heal, and then he would return, and then Christ would take his place as the king there on the throne there in Jerusalem. That's what Peter's emphasis is here in Acts 3. But the presence of the Lord, John 15, gives us that same concept today for us who are believers and walk with Jesus each and every day. That presence of the Lord is found in the word abide. Let us abide in Christ. Apart from Christ, we can do what? Uh, With Christ, we can do what? All things. So he says, abide in me over and over and over again. Abide in me. Continue with me in that intimate, close communion relationship that I desire to have with you. Walk with me. As the disciples were walking with him in his presence, abide in me and continue to abide in me. And you can't abide in Christ if you are running from the call of Christ upon your life. As one wrote, he said, nevertheless, when you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you are going and you always pay the fare on your own. But when you go the Lord's way, you not only get to where you are going, but he pays the fare before you. And what a crazy thought for us to think that any of us can escape the presence of God. For the psalmist writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me may be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. God, where can I go, David asks, that isn't with you? Thirdly, God wants to work in you, to work through you. Paul says that we are living epistles. God's doing a specific work in your life that's meant to be read by others. You are a living epistle, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. God is working in you to work through you for his purposes and his glory. That's why all of us here at Calvary Chapel understand fully that we are all works in progress. None of us have arrived to that perfection. We won't get there until we are in heaven with the Lord. That's why we ask for grace, grace, and more grace. But that work that God is doing in us, he's doing for a purpose to work through us. And lastly, number four, we can't be sleeping. Notice what we discover from Jonah sleeping in the bowels of the ship, and we'll close with this. Jonah slept in a place where he had hoped no one would see him or disturb him. Sleeping Christians, I think, are just like this. They hide out amongst the church. 
Christians are hiding in the church today. They don't want to get their hands dirty with the world any longer. They hope nobody ever calls upon them to do anything. They simply want to stay in their safe little place and never venture out. A Christian hiding among the church is a sleeping Christian. Jonah slept in a place where he could not help with the work that needed to be done. Sleeping Christians stay away from the work of the Lord. Jonah slept while there was prayer meeting on the upper deck. Sleeping Christians don't even like to attend prayer meetings. It's amazing that if we call a group together here at Calvary Chapel, if we say we're going to have food, we'll have 100. If we say we're going to pray, we have 10. We're going to change that. We've got to change that. Wrong focus. We're going to have prayer, and then whoever prays gets to eat. How's that? No. We're going to motivate them that way. But listen, by the number of those who come out for prayer really truly demonstrates the health of a church because it's a selfless act. And Jonah was sleeping while all of them were crying out to their gods on top of the deck, and he wanted nothing to do with it. Number three, Jonah slept and had no idea of the problems around him. Sleeping Christians don't know what really is going on around them. Dean and I will pray for anybody who asks us to pray for them. But lately, we have been inundated with people asking us to pray because they believe that we are some way closer to God than they are. And... I, I, I want to make it abundantly clear. I am no closer to God than you are. The reason I say that is because I go through the same mediation that you do to the Father through Christ. If you have Christ and I have Christ, we have the same means of mediation. You are as close to God as I am and God will listen to you. But truly, let's understand that one thing that will hinder your prayer life is unconfessed sin. And unforgiveness is an unconfessed sin, and it needs to be resolved. Let us understand that Dean and I will always pray for you, but when it comes to our closeness to God, you're just as close as we are. And number four, Jonah slept when he was in great danger. Sleeping Christians are in danger, but don't even know it. All of us have commented here in the church about how fast our society has slipped into the moral decay that it has. Do you know whose fault that is? It's ours. Christians should have been fighting the battle. But there was a time that everyone wanted just to check out of the battle, become our own subculture, just kind of interact with all of us safely and neatly without any kind of war wounds or battle scars of any sort. And we, didn't, we wanted to try to avoid the spiritual warfare altogether. And now the next thing you know, everything has slid so far vastly south. And we say, well, what happened? What happened was we didn't engage in it. We didn't get our hands dirty in it. And the subculture that we thought was going to be so protected is now being uh, uh, targeted for persecution. God never wanted us to become a separate subculture. He wants us to become a community within the world to be a light onto the world. That's what God's desire is for us. And lastly, Jonah slept while the heathens needed him. 
As one wrote, he said, sleeping Christians snooze while the world needs their message and the testimony. You have the answer to the number one thing killing people, and that's sin. Why are we so afraid to share it? Because they're going to not like us or they're going to unfriend us from Facebook? Really? Is that the consequence that I, Lord, you know, I share the gospel with them, but I only have six friends on Facebook, and if they unfriend me, I'm only going to have five. Really? Really? Each and every one of you here today has a story to share with someone about what God's doing in your life. Don't be embarrassed of that story. That's your story with God. And one person may need to hear that and their eyes open and their heart open to the reality of their need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. And they too then will enter into that salvation through Christ and have what you have. And now you no longer have an individual destined for a separation from God for all eternity, but now you have a brother or sister in the Lord. That's what we're looking for. So Jonah, fearful of forgiveness, began by running from the will of God.